Hi, this is Pastor Corey. I hope this podcast will encourage you, strengthen your faith, and most importantly, help you draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for listening. This will be my 10th sermon in the series. It all started with one sermon that had no plans on becoming a series called, Are You Prepared? And though I do a quick reminder every week, typically to remind us of of why we are where we are in the scriptures, I want to go back to that very beginning message for, before I even get started. My whole point behind this is that I do believe that we live in the last days. I don't think there's any question that if you have been a part of Christianity, any part of it since, you know, probably, I don't know, forever, but I mean, in my lifetime, I have seen and heard different preachers preach from the late 80s into the 90s, even though I wasn't a Christian, I sometimes listened to that stuff, and I would hear predictions of what would take place in the end times outside of, you know, things that I would say are necessarily in the Bible, written black and white. They were things that they said would would possibly happen, and you see some of those things taking place in our world today, and you see some of that stuff happening, and it's happening faster and faster as, as you know, time progresses in life, and seeing the way that the world is going, you know, I see that we are definitely in the last days, which means that if you are going to endure to the end, those who endure shall be saved, you've got to make sure that your relationship with Jesus Christ is rock solid. Do you really believe in him or do you believe in him by word only? Because a lot of people profess to believe in God, to believe in Jesus Christ. But there is so much more than just a profession from our mouth. There has to be action within our heart. Like Jesus is real. And if I could stand up here most Sundays and just preach, a few years ago I preached a series called I Believe. We might go back into that again this year. Like it it reinforces our faith to know there is no question that Jesus Christ lived upon this earth and that if he isn't who he said he was, he was a crazy lunatic. He is the Son of God, he is the third person of the Trinity. That he is real, that he lived, that he died, that he was resurrected. He is the only major figure of a religion that is not in a grave today. And that someday soon he will be returning for his people. The Bible gives us instructions on what that's going to look like. How it's going to take place. So we can prepare. So that we don't have to fear. And when I started this off, I talked about Matthew chapter 24 and uh, 25, and we talked about the, the ten virgins and those parables, and we talked about what the earth would look like, that there would be famines and earthquakes and pestilences, worldwide diseases, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that there would be people who would have their, allow their love to grow cold, that they would be offended, that parents would turn against their kids and their kids against their parents and their brothers against the sisters, the sisters against the, like people within the family. You don't have to worry about some neighbor that you don't even know because your own family doesn't agree with you anymore. And that when you listen to all of this, if you're not careful, what it produces is fear inside of you. 
You become fearful. You become fearful of what's going to happen. What's the next earthquake? What's the next, what happens if we don't get enough snow this year and the mountains catch fire and our houses burn down? What happens if, you know, the earth is ravished and, you know, there's all sorts of fights over water or, or there's a lack of food? What happens if war becomes a part of our nation? If there's civil war within our nation? What happens if, you know, somebody rises up that appears to be an antichrist that's even greater than anything we've seen before and puts everything into motion that we've ever heard of? What happens if those who we know best turn their backs against us? What happens? And if you're not careful, you will allow the end days to rather bring joy into your heart that we'll soon see the return of Jesus, our Savior, and you will be overwhelmed with fear. And fear stops us from becoming who God has designed us to be. I think that half the reason why we are in the state we are in most of the time is because we are not bold in our faith. We are afraid right now before things even get worse of what people think about us, what they'll say about us. They'll, we're, we're concerned with what they will do to us and how they might treat us. We're concerned with loss in our life. You know, will I lose this person as a friend? Will I lose them as a coworker? Will I lose this? Will I lose my job? Will I lose these different things? If I am who God has called me to be and I do the things that he has called me to do. This whole series is challenging us. Are we prepared? But with the fact of being prepared comes the idea that God has called us in the Great Commission to evangelize the world. And a lot of times, people, they put their, when they're dissatisfied in life, they will put that dissatisfaction in their spiritual life on the leadership of the church. And they'll gripe and complain because they don't see people coming to Jesus. I want to dispel, dispel the myth today. Probably 99% of salvations in the Bible take place outside the four walls. Because it's not on the shoulders of the pastor to lead people to Christ right here. It's on the shoulders of the pastor to lead people to Christ in his own life. Where I am at, what I do for a living, where I travel, the people that I speak to. And guess what? It doesn't bother me one bit for people to look at my life and say, you know, who have you influenced? Who have you impacted? Because I have a relationship with God and I know what I'm doing for the Lord. But when people are dissatisfied in their own spiritual life, because they don't see fruit in their life, because they don't see salvations in their life, because they're not doing what the Bible has told them to do, then they turn that bitterness towards other people. And my challenge to all of us as I've preached through this series is that the Great Commission is a responsibility of every single person who would say they follow after Jesus. To lead people to Christ. There's two things that God has called us to do. Love him with all that we are. And then spread that to other people. This is Jesus. This is why I'm crazy. Let me introduce you to the person who's made me crazy, who drives me crazy, who I'm crazy in love with. And I hope that he'll make you crazy too.
And so I've packaged, packaged this whole idea of the responsibility of evangelizing in a way to all of you over the last nine weeks that would hopefully help you to understand you have a responsibility, but that responsibility doesn't necessarily mean that you stand on a street corner and shout at people. That responsibility is that you will share your story, the power of the word of your testimony, where your story and God's grace have intersected. That is the simplest way to describe what evangelizing really is. Impact people with your story, with your testimonies. And I think that we often don't do that, and we'll make a lot of excuses for why we don't do that. We might do it because we don't think we've been saved long enough. We don't know Jesus well enough because we don't have much of a story. We don't do it because, you know, the government says that we can't do it wherever we are. We don't do it, you know, because we think that it's somebody else's responsibility or that we're too shy, we're too embarrassed, or that we don't want to be ridiculed or all these types of excuses, right? But what I want you to understand is that if you want to live the life of an overcomer, like the Bible describes overcomers, then the third ingredient to the inoculation that would empower you to overcome all aspects of life is that you would not have that fear in your life. Revelations chapter 12, 10 through 11 for the last time says this, John, who received this revelation from the Lord, would write these words from the island of Patmos. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, and he gives us the benefits of an overcomer. Salvation and strength. The kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The devil's been defeated. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The first ingredient, the word of their testimony, the second ingredient, and the third and final one, they did not love their lives to the death. Friday night as I wrote my sermon, I probably spent two hours reading through story after story after story from the website, The Voice of the Martyrs. Christians who have suffered are suffering and who have even lost their lives and been killed for their faith. Stories like Yumang Than. He was a believer. He came to Christ in his own home country of Myanmar, imprisoned for becoming a follower of Christ. Some of his friends and family didn't even know that he was imprisoned until there was a couple of friends one day that came looking for him, only to hear that he had been put in jail. They fought to go and see him. For three days in a row, they had traveled to his city to see him. They fought and fought and fought until finally on the third day, they were able to visit their friend, Muang Than. On that day, there was a prison guard that took them, a, a, a prison escort that took them outside to a place where the two friends could meet with him in private in a little wooded area outside of the jail. And all that he did was ask his friends, he wasn't concerned about his own life, that they would please 
make sure that they share the gospel, the good news, in the area in which he lived. And he said to remind them, this is your responsibility as Christians. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Make sure it covers the entire neighboring area. And you must be faithful unto death. When he said those words, then the prison escort pulled out his gun and shot him in the head and said he had said too much. Or the story of Tula Mosisa. He was of Ethiopia. He was a farmer in a village in his country. He was in a neighboring village from his own home village because he had to find work on this farm. He would attend this little Baptist church inside that village on Sundays. And that is where there was armed uh, Muslim militia that came in during a Sunday service, locked the doors behind them, took out their machetes, and did as much harm to Christians as they possibly could before the local police showed up. And being that it was in a Muslim area in Ethiopia, the police weren't quick to respond, and there was nobody that was ever charged with any sort of crime. But the voice of the martyrs would write these words about Tulu. They would say that his dedication to his faith was evident in his life. His example through his death had spread to his own family. And when his wife, Chulta, was visited by their support organization after the incident, she greeted them with a smile, with enthusiasm, and she shouted, God is great. Though devastated by her husband's death, she explained how she'd been greatly encouraged by other Christian friends that had come to visit her. And she said of her husband, although it is painful, I understand that he was killed for his faith. Mark 13, 13, Jesus said, you will be hated for my name's sake. You will be for my name's sake. And sometimes that hate manifests itself through death in the life of a believer. Knowing that he lived in a Muslim area did not put fear inside of him. Fearless about continuing to meet with other believers on a regular basis, even though that fear eventually cost him his life, he knew the promise of the Lord in the rest of that verse that says, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Probably one of the most impactful stories I read, and the final one I'll tell you about this morning, was of four teenage girls. Teenagers. Teenagers who were so impacted by their faith that in a Muslim country, they would openly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. Teresa, Yarni, Alfida, and Noviana. They lived in Indonesia. One day, and it was during Ramadan, which probably was the reason for what happened to them. They were on their way walking to school. They attended a school called Poso Christian High School. When six men surrounded those four girls with machetes, Noviana was slashed in several places. She was beat up extremely. Somehow she escaped. But when the police, local police, heard of the news, they came back only to find parts of bodies that had been beheaded. The heads of the girls were left at different police stations and at a local church. 
their lives were mercilessly taken that Saturday morning on their way to school, to high school. But their faith lived on. They would write in Voice of the Martyrs, the word of their testimony, the word of their testimony traveled worldwide, giving encouragement and hope to others to possess lives full of youthful joy in Christ and a sober reminder that we're all just visitors in a corrupt world. And they did not love their lives till the death. We're not meant to live in fear. When the Bible calls us overcomers, he's calling, it's calling us overcomers because we've not just overcome the fact that we've lost somebody in our lives or, <coughs> excuse me, our finances are bad and we couldn't pay our bills for a while and we had to get another job or somebody broke up with us or something like that. It calls us overcomers because we've overcome the enemy. Because Christ first overcame for us. It calls us overcomers because, yes, we do overcome those situations in our lives, no matter what those situations are, but that we've also overcome fear itself. And that's really what this is about because fear stops you so often from being who God has called you to be. The answer to overcoming is all three. It starts with the blood of the Lamb. That is the most foundational aspect. We don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. He paid the price for us. And that allows us to know that when the world is lying to us, when Satan tells you you're not good enough, that God values you. He values you. He believes in you. He wants the best for you. That he loves you with an unconditional love. It all starts there. When you can bring that into your own life and where your test and God's grace intersect, then you can have power in the word of your testimony. And that through all of that, I truly believe that if you are somebody who stands on the blood of Jesus Christ and that you are out there telling people your story, and the more you tell it, the more faith you have, the stronger you become in what you believe, that you will not have a fear of death in your life. That all three of them go together. The NLT words it this way, they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Now this is referring to being willing to die for what you say you believe. That's what I want you to understand. I just told you a bunch of stories about martyrdom, which I believe martyrdom is, is an aspect of our faith. But what I really want us to understand is it does not mean we all have to die for our faith. Some people will be called to die for their faith, but all of us are called to be willing, no matter the cost. Jesus spoke of this in several places about being willing. Luke 21, 16, when he talks about the fact that you will betray, be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And then he says, they will put some of you to death. The words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There will be people that will betray you. They'll hurt you. There will be opportunity for offense in your life. And if you hold on to that offense when people betray you, then your love will grow cold. And some people 
will die because of it. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus' words are like, don't fear man. The only thing that you should be fearing, the only person you should be fearing is the one that is in control of all. And not fear in a, I'm afraid of who my God is, but fear in an honor and respect for who he is. Apostle Peter, he was prepared for such a fate in his life when in 2 Peter 1, 14 through 15, he wrote these words. He said, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. That doesn't mean he's not going to be camping anymore. That means that he's not going to be camping on this earth anymore. He knew that shortly he would be put to death, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things, these things that he's been teaching after he is deceased. The Apostle Paul, in several places, but one in particular, was prepared for the same life. Acts 21.13, he looks at a group of believers who are trying to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. Not to go where it's been prophesied that he would be put in chains and bound. And Paul answered that group of believers who were well-intentioned in wanting to protect him and guard him and make sure that he's not hurt. But he looks at them and he says, what do you mean by weeping? Like, why are you guys crying about this and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What a statement. Like, quit crying because you guys are making me sad. I'm ready to go to jail, and I'm ready to be put to death for what I believe. That's not just a statement from a really strong believer in Jesus whose words we read in what we call the Bible. That is a statement from a man who is flesh and blood just like you and I. And that is a statement from a Christian who understands the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and to have no fear of death in their lives. Most of the disciples died for their faith except for John. And John was spared through much persecution, and yet he's the one that would write the words in Revelation that we read about those who will die for their faith. Martyrdom can be the end result of what you and I believe. However, what's being described in Revelation 12, 11, I want to remind you Though it may be the ultimate testimony of a life that's completely surrendered to Christ, it is not what we are all called to do. He has called us to a place of freedom. Freedom. Everybody say freedom. freedom. You know what? I don't know if you guys have ever been bound by something in your lives, but once you find freedom in that area that you've been bound, it's unexplainable. I can't say is that I've ever been truly addicted to drugs in my life, but I've had issues in my life where I've felt bound. From big things to small things, there is an amazing feeling 
when you escape those things that bind you. I've had health issues that have bound me to the Silver Valley at times for years where I can hardly travel even to Coeur Lane. And it just became more and more constricting over time. And then I remember one of the first times that I was able to actually drive to Olympia and back. And what a feeling I had inside that no longer was that health issue binding me to a certain area. There was a freedom to know that I could travel. I've had things that have held me down morally in my life. Things that I've shared on a Sunday morning that I've struggled with and struggled with and struggled with only to eventually, through continuing to follow after Christ, find freedom in Christ. And the freedom that came with it is indescribable. I remember one time working with somebody in drug court and I was driving them around different places and every time we would see a police officer, they'd be like, oh. I'm like, dude, what are you worried about? You're clean. Like, it's okay, right? Like, I can't even imagine what that would feel like to have to drive around and every time you see a certain individual or an entity that represents something in life that you have a fear that comes over you. I guess my only way is that whenever I'm driving down the freeway and my wife says, there's a cop, I'm like, But you know how I control that? It's called cruise control. And usually when she says that, nowadays I pull my foot off, but my car stays the same speed. So, But you know what? When I'm not speeding, I love when she says, there's a cop. And I'll be like, I'm not speeding. Like That's a small example of what it feels like to just have a little freedom and knowing that you know what, I'm not bound by this. It's okay. You know, in Romans, it talks about, owe no man anything, including debt. I'm not saying this, but as an encouragement to all of you. A couple, probably two or three years ago, the Lord blessed my wife and I enough after years of diligence to be debt-free. Not a penny do we owe anybody. And I want to tell you something. Until you've experienced that freedom, I own my house. I own my cars that I drive. We, owe every, we, we own everything except for taxes, right, and debt. There is an amazing sense of freedom that comes with knowing that we are not bound even by bills, there is a freedom that comes. And what God wants you to understand is that freedom. That freedom that even comes from not being afraid to die. As, being, as is being talked about right here. No longer even afraid of death. Because I know that there is something greater on the other side. 
He's describing this like I have such a love in a Savior that there is nothing that can stop me, not even death itself. That Paul would write to the church in Philippi and say these words, for me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Like that's a man who wasn't afraid of death. That's a man who wasn't afraid to say things and do things no matter what the people's response to him might be. There's a freedom that comes with a statement like that. When I think of Paul, I I literally think even for him to be able to say to other believers, like, quit crying, like you're breaking my heart. I don't care. Like it's Jesus or bust. It doesn't matter to me. I know where I'm going, right? There's a freedom with that. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, somebody say anyone, anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Somebody say deny myself. And take up his cross and follow me. You want to follow Jesus, an aspect of following Jesus is taking up the cross like he took up the cross to make a sacrifice of your life, to deny yourself. Doesn't necessarily mean you're dying on the cross, but you're dying to self. Forever, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Being willing to deny ourselves is learning to die to self. And they did not love their lives to the death. Their lives, that word in the original language in the Greek, actually references the idea of a soul. We get up here and we sing these words, it doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I see. Right? God's goodness, God's presence, God's love, God's protection, God's comfort is enough for me. Learning to die to self. So yes, there's a literal death. But most, for most Christians, what's being talked about is learning to die to your own ways, to your own plans, to your own dreams, and picking up what God has called you to do. Most of us, we know how to say the right things, but when it comes down to it, our actions will often speak another story. And why is that? Because if we're all honest in here, we love our lives way too much. Giving up what we want for the things of God sounds good, right? I'm willing to do that for God. I'm willing to give this up, to go another way, to to go after him with all of my hearts. And I believe that most Christians genuinely want that in their life. But the question is, do we? Do we? Do we? Are we really surrendering those things? Are we surrendering the attitudes that we have? Are we surrendering the vices that we have? Are we surrendering the hurts that we have? Are we really surrendering those things to fully die to ourselves to follow after Christ, to live for him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes 
this life that I am talking about right now. He describes it as a life of love. How many know we all want love, right? We all want to hear about the God of love, that, that faith is all about love, love, love. Let's just all love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is called the chapter of verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul would write to the church. That's important to understand. He's not writing this to an individual. He's not writing this to a married couple. He's writing this to a bunch of people who gather together to follow after Jesus. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. That's sin. But rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And this challenging word endures all things. Now let's just take the first verse there. Verse 4, love suffers long. Some of your translations, if you're reading through that, says love is patient, love is kind, right? And then verse 5 says that love is not provoked. Now the NIV would translate that, that love is not easily angered. The RSV translates that as love is not irritable. Love's not irritable. I could go on and on about that in my own life. Like, listen, we all have this, this craving, right, in our lives. This is the truth, and just acknowledge this. You can shake your head when I say this. Every single person in here more than likely has a very strong craving for a trouble-free life. We want a life without trouble. And when our best laid plans get delayed, what we hoped to do, what we wanted to accomplish, what I was, why I was doing what I was doing in this situation, and it's just delayed, and it's delayed, and it's delayed. When things aren't going as hoped, what happens? We tend to get irritated, right? From little things like bad traffic, problems with your kids, financial challenges, health issues. You know what? We like it when life flows according to our plan and our pleasure. And when it doesn't, what happens? It's natural for us to become provoked, to complain, to gripe and grumble, to get angry, and to grow critical. Because it's not going like my plan was. Like I had hoped that it would go. So what happens when suffer long, love is long suffering, when suffer long is more often suffer short. Then suffer short must die. To live like this is to die to yourself. If I'm to, to live like God has called me to live, to love like he's called me to love, then I've got to learn to die. My, my cravings for the trouble-free life has to die. My need for an uninterrupted schedule in life has to die. 
my demand that frustrations get out of my way has to die. We simply cannot love the way that Paul describes until we do not love our lives to the death. Actually, Paul's whole call to love in this section is a call to death. See, you all thought this is the chapter of love. But if you really read through it, it's the chapter of Christians learning what it means to die to self. Listen to this. Being long-suffering means dying to the desire for an untroubled life. Having no jealousy means dying to the desire for unshared affection. Not boasting means dying to the desire to call attention to our successes. Not acting unbecomingly means dying to the desire to express our freedom offensively. Not seeking our own way means dying to the dominance of our own preferences. Not being easily provoked means dying to the need for no frustrations. Not taking account of the wrongs of others means dying to the desire for revenge. Bearing all things and enduring all things means dying to the desire to run away from the pain of obedience. You know, I read through this scripture probably over 17 years and almost every wedding that I have ever done. I'll tell you, it's applicable to marriages. Definitely applicable to marriages. But who is this really written to? To the church, which in this case happens to be struggling with divisiveness, irritating each other, provoking each other. There's divisions that are taking place. The Christians who gather together, they're not getting along And this is how Paul tells them that they need to love each other. This is what love looks like. Francis Francis Schaeffer once said, when Christians differ, when we differ, there's a golden opportunity to show the world how we love each other. Differences are not the end of love. They are the occasion for love. Which means an occasion for death. One of the reasons it's so easy to walk away from a difference instead of working it out is that you don't have to die. If we can practice what it means to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to love our love not our lives amongst our spiritual family, I'm telling you this morning it will make it that much easier to be able to love the world in a dark world in the last days. If we can practice taking up the cross and dying to ourselves, we will fulfill being the overcomers that God has called us to be. When you've learned to love your, lay down your soul, you don't care about the accusations of the enemy that we've talked about over the last several weeks, how he's an accuser in our lives. When you're not bothered by the offenses that are caused by others, when you're able to lay down your pride to do it your own way, and you're not afraid of the ridicule that comes with sharing your testimony of God's grace in your life, you will be an overcomer.
to be victorious, I'm telling you this morning, you've got to be willing to lose. To be an overcomer, you've got to be willing to first be overcome. It's all about Jesus. That's the life of an overcomer.